So this morning we are beginning a new series that we're going to be taking a look at the New Testament book of First John. And it's a short book, it's only five chapters long, um, but there's so much that's packed into this book. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to just take a look um, at this uh, book of First John. And I trust that the Holy Spirit through John's pen is just going to be a, a blessing and an encouragement to you. So as, as we start, I want to just ask, have you ever gotten a text before that was not intended for you? Yeah, I, I'm sure most of us probably have at one time or another. You know, maybe we got, you know, maybe just some random person texted you and they just texted the wrong number or, and this can sometimes be a little bit more awkward, is it somebody you know and they accidentally sent you a text that was intended to go to somebody else? And, and, and it, it, can, it can feel a little bit strange. It can feel a little bit awkward. It, it's kind of like reading somebody else's mail. Like you're getting kind of a glimpse into into a, a, a conversation that you weren't necessarily privy to. Um, I, I remember it was about 14 years ago, Angela's dad had a stroke, and so we were in his house, and we were just kind of going through his papers and his mail and, and stuff, and, and, and there was invoices and bills and correspondences that we opened up, and we had no idea what they were concerning. Like, there was no context to it. And so it made it difficult to kind of like piece together, all right, what, what's actually going on here? What is, what is being communicated? Like, why is dad being billed for this? Like, we, dad, we had no context. We had no greater information as to why he was receiving this. And so we were reading these letters. We were reading these correspondences and trying to figure out what was going on, even though we didn't have the full picture. And, and sometimes reading some of the epistles, or it's a fancy church word for letters, some of the, reading some of the epistles in the New Testament can sometimes feel that way too. That we're reading a letter that, that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, written some 2,000 years ago to a specific people at a specific time. And, 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 and so we're, we, we sometimes, we're getting a glimpse into this, this letter that was written not to us, but it was written to a different group of people, and, and so we have to try to figure out, all right, what's actually being communicated here? We want, we want a larger, greater context so we have a, a bigger understanding of it. John Walton, he's, a, he's an Old Testament uh, scholar and professor at uh, uh, Wheaton College, excuse me, I'm sorry, and, and he, he shares this quote often where he says that the, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. And, and in a nutshell, what, what he's kind of saying by that is, is that the, the, the letters, the books of the Bible, they were written to a, a, a specific people in a time and a culture that was often very different than our own. And so if we're going to understand them in the same way we were trying to understand these letters and correspondences that Angela's dad had after he had his stroke... It would, it would behoove us just to, to put ourselves in the mindset of those people who would be receiving this letter, that would be receiving this correspondence, that, that the Holy Spirit inspired the writing and was a part of assembling what we call the Bible today. It was written and compiled for us, but it was not necessarily written to us. And, and so, like, in, in, this is a, a, a famous verse. Most of us have probably heard this at one time or another. 2 Timothy chapter 3 Verse 16, 17 says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, 
so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so the, 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 the epistles, the, these books that we read, even though they might not have been written to us, they're still written for us, that, that we can be taught, we can be rebuked, we can be corrected, we can be trained in righteousness through them. And so before we dive into the, the text of 1 John, I want to give us a little bit of background, a little bit of context about this important letter that will hopefully uh, shine some light for us and give us a, a greater understanding of what it is that John is trying to communicate. Now, the, the people that God chose to write the different books of the Bible came from all different kinds of backgrounds and walks of life. Where Moses, like he was born in the, or, or raised in the lap of luxury. Like Mo Moses, he, he was raised in, in Pharaoh's palace, and so that's where he came of age. That was his experience. Nehemiah, on the other hand, was a slave in Babylon. Matthew was a tax collector, which means he was pretty much uh, universally despised. He wasn't, most people did not uh, consider tax, tax collectors trustworthy. Luke was a doctor, a profession that, you know, most people would see, say is an honorable profession, and so likely people looked up to him. And, and then we have, we have John, who's universally uh, recognized as, as the author of 1 John, the, the letter that bears his name. And if, if you study the life of John, he's actually an incredibly interesting uh, character. That he was the youngest of the disciples that Jesus called. And likely would have been considered, if you, if you read about him, would be considered a bit of a hothead. Like Jesus even referred to him and his brother James as James and John, the, the sons of thunder. Like John is the guy that if you read Luke chapter 9, that Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're walking through a Samaritan village. And, and the Samaritans that are in this village are not too receptive to, to Jesus and his disciples and their teaching. And so John offers a helpful suggestion. And he says, all right, Jesus, do you want me to call down fire from heaven and destroy all of them? Because they've not been very nice to us. Like, John was a guy who convinced his mom to go talk with Jesus and say, all right, hey, Jesus, you know, like when you come into your kingdom, can my two boys, can James and John, can they sit at one at your right hand and one at your left hand? Like, they, like will you give them like a seat of prominence when your kingdom comes? Like, I, the gall of that, and then having your mom do it, of all things, too, but, like, whatever. But, but, but let, me, let me tell you, like, I, and I find this really fascinating, too, that if you think reading your Bible is boring, you're probably not doing it right, because there's some really, really great stuff in, in there. In fact, one of the, the funniest passages that just cracks me up and makes me laugh every time I read it is written by John in, in his gospel. So in John chapter 20, I want to read you just this, this portion here, that again, John penned this, and, and where this took place, uh, or what's happening, is Jesus had, had risen from the dead. The, the tomb is empty in this moment, and that's where we're going to pick up in John chapter 20, verse 1. It says, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. And so she ran, and she found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, John's referring to himself in that, in that place. So Peter, Peter and John are, are together, and, and Mary Magdalene goes and tells Peter and John, hey, the tomb is empty. And she says, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put it. 
And so Peter and the other disciple, they started out for the tomb. They were both running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And I just, it cracks me up because John, like, he's patting himself on the back. He's like, yeah, me and Peter, we were running for the tomb, and I left Peter in the dust. Like, I, I was like, like, like I, I just, <laughs> number one, I love the humility that John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which I think is just rich right there in and of itself. And then he goes out of his way to let everybody know that the billions of people that were going to read John's gospel over the centuries, that he could outrun Peter in a foot race. Like, I, it, just, it just cracks me up. And, and, and so, like, John, th- this guy that, that wrote five different books in the New Testament, like, he wasn't some, like, super saint. He definitely had some um, ego issues. He had some anger issues, like, threatening to call down, you know, thunder. Like, he, he was trying to vie and, 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 and get a, uh, a spot for himself and for his brother. But as he, as he wrote these five different books that are in our New Testament today, we get really kind of a glimpse at the heart of who John really is. Now, the the five books that John wrote, he wrote the Gospel of John, the one that bears his name. He wrote three different epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then he also wrote the book of Revelation. Now, we don't know this 100% for certain, but the three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, are likely the last words that were ever written and compiled into our, our Bibles today. Because if you, if you know your, your New Testament, it's not put in chronological order. So Revelation was not the last, the last book that was written. And so again, just to kind of give you a little context of, of not just John, but all right, where is he, like what's happening in John's life? What's happening in the world as John is writing this? So after Jesus was resurrected and he ascended into heaven, John began preaching the good news about Jesus. And during the reign of Emperor Domitian, there was a significant anti-Christian persecution and John was exiled to the island of Patmos, which if you can put that map up on the screen Patmos is, is an island in the Mediterranean Sea just off the west coast of what's modern-day Turkey. And it was on, it was on the island of Patmos that, that God gave John his, his revelation that he wrote down. He gave John a vision, and John wrote it down as the book of Revelation. But after John got off of the island of Patmos, after his exile w- was done, instead of going back to Judah, which is where John was originally from, he actually spent his twilight years, he spent the last years of his life in Asia Minor, being kind of a father figure to the churches that Paul had planted throughout Asia Minor in in modern-day Turkey. And so when John wrote these letters, when he wrote 1 John, he was approaching the end of his life. He had come a long way. He was no longer the, the manipulator that he was before, you know, when he was younger, trying to get the best seat at the table. He wasn't necessarily the the braggart anymore that was trying to give Peter a hard time because he couldn't run very fast. Like, he is a man who had been thoroughly transformed by the power of Jesus. And I mentioned that that this letter, the letters were were written for us, but not necessarily to us. And so John's audience, who he's writing to, are these churches that are in Asia Minor, these churches that that a number of years before, Paul had gone on his missionary journeys and he had planted these churches throughout what's modern-day Turkey. But after Paul's death, there was, there was a leadership vacuum. And, and they needed something. They needed someone to come and to help them. 
these young churches, because they, they, had, they, didn't have, they weren't eyewitnesses to, to what Jesus had done. Like the, what they were being, what, what Paul introduced to them was something totally brand new. And now with, when Paul had been executed, when Paul was no longer with them, there was this leadership vacuum. And, and unfortunately, what was happening is there, there were some groups of people, these false teachers that were starting to step into this leadership vacuum that took place or that, that was there. And one of these groups were this group of kind of pseudo-Christian group called the Gnostics. And this, this group of heretics, they, they'd kind of infiltrated the church and had begun spreading some false teachings that were perverting, perverting the true gospel of Jesus. And, and through his, this book in 1 John, we're gonna reference and talk about some of those uh, false teachings that, that he was sharing but he's confronting these teachings because they were sowing seeds of confusion, creating insecurity about people's faith. And so this morning, we're only going to talk about four verses this morning, the very first four verses in, in 1 John. So I want to read them to you, and then we're going to kind of pick them apart a little bit. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, he begins by saying, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus right there, the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and what we have heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, if you could put verse 1 back on, on the screen. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. John, John is starting off his, his letter to these, these churches in Asia Minor by reminding them of who Jesus is. That, that's the very first thing he does coming right out of the gate, that he's reminding these people, hey, this is, this is who Jesus is. When, when Paul came and shared with you, when Paul was sharing the good news, and he's sharing the gospel, don't forget, this is who Jesus was. That which was from the beginning. Like th this guy, we heard him speak. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him. We experienced him. He says, then we, we, we want to proclaim this concerning the word of life. And, and this is a phrase, the word of life, this is a phrase that, that John uses multiple times when he references Jesus. The word. The word of life. And so if we put a pin here, I want to go back to John's gospel, the way John opens up his gospel account, the story of Jesus. And so in John chapter 1, verse 1, it's going to sound very similar he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. And without him nothing was made that had been made. And then going to verse 14, it says, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Like John wants to make perfectly clear that the Word is God and Jesus is the Word. He's making a case for, for Jesus' divinity right here. 
that Jesus was not just, a, not just a great teacher, but that he was fully divine and fully man. That he's, that he's personal. His point is that Jesus is God in the flesh. God in the flesh. He wasn't created. He didn't evolve, but he just is. He always has been. In Revelation, John refers to Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In Hebrews 13.8, it says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Like he's eternal. With Jesus, there was no beginning and there is no end. John's trying to make perfectly clear, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He's not a step down. He's not the heir apparent, but he really is God in the flesh. He's the total, the full expression of he who's always existed. And so why would he start this letter this way? Like, like he, there's no like warm greeting. Like if you read Paul's letters, you know, normally he's got like at least some kind of greeting at the beginning. You know, oh, you know what? I, I never stop. I, I never just get tired of, of praying for you and rejoicing. With you. Like John doesn't begin his letter like, he, he just starts right off the bat. Hey, this is what's up. And he does so because of the Gnostics. The, these, these false teachers who had infiltrated the church and they were starting to lead the people away. And, and like I said, Gnosticism, it, it was a bit of like mysticism, philosophy, and religion all rolled into one. It, it was a very heady thing. And they, and they, taught, they, they taught a number of things, but there are two kind of basic truths that the, that the Gnostics often taught. And the first one is that salvation comes through a, a secret mystical knowledge. And you needed to acquire this knowledge in order to be saved. In fact, their name comes from the, the, the Greek word gnosto, which means the knowing ones. And they taught that you don't need faith to come to salvation. You need this knowledge. You need this, this special revelation from God in order to be saved. Now, if you've been around church for any period of time, that ought to raise a bunch of red flags to us. Because in Ephesians 2, 8, 2, 8 and 9, Paul explicitly says that we are saved by grace through faith. Not of our own works, not of our own deeds. I'm gonna include, this is my <laughs> insertion. Not of our own knowledge but we are saved by grace through faith. Obviously a heretical teaching that needed to be put down. But the other basic teaching of the Gnostics was that all matter, our bodies, are evil. Spirit is good, our bodies, everything here on earth that we see, experience, ourselves are evil. And so because the body is bad, because the body is evil, then Jesus could not have had a physical body then. If, 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 our, if our flesh is evil, then there's no way that Jesus could have had a physical body. And so they would often teach that Jesus only appeared to have a physical body. There, there was one strain of their teaching was that Jesus was born with a physical body, that the Spirit came upon him at his baptism, and then left immediately before he died on the cross. But biblically, that doesn't hold any, any water either. That in Philippians chapter 2, Starting in verse 5, Paul says explicitly, he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. He said, all right, Jesus, and Paul's saying that same thing. Jesus, who's in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. 
but rather he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And, and they're, they're, they're talking about like what, what modern uh, theologians use a, a fancy word for it. They call it hypostatic union. And it's this idea that, that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man all at the same time. Paul, in fact, references this as, as a mystery, that, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He, he was fully divine and fully human all at the same time. And, and Christianity is completely based on this idea that, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he came, came down to earth to dwell with his people. And being the perfect and the final sacrifice for all of humanity's sins, that, that he was both God and man at the same time. And often, like, we, we talk about the idea of the incarnation around, around Christmas time. You know, that, that Jesus left heaven, took on flesh, came to the, the world as, as a baby. And this is such a central part of the Christian faith, one that, that John, John I can't say that word, that John really wanted to push back on anybody that was opposing that teaching. And so he begins by saying, hey, this is who Jesus is. He's always been. He is God in the flesh. But the second thing he tells us is that we can know and we can experience Jesus ourselves. I'm going to read verse 1 and verse 2 again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it. We've testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Like John is stressing how amazing it is that Jesus would come to us, that God would come to us, that we could experience God. And this was far different than, than anything any other religion taught, that we don't have to make our way to God, that God made his way to us. And he gets very sensory about it, though, that we've heard him, we've seen him, we've touched him, like we witnessed the miracles, we saw the empty tomb. Remember, I outran Peter to get there. Like, like we, we've experienced God in the flesh. And if you think about the audience that John is writing to, he's writing to people in, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and, and they were heavily influenced by Greek culture. If, like, if, if you saw on that map, like, Greece is, like, right there. It's just a stone's throw away from where these churches were. And so that what they had been influenced by is that, all right, the gods are up there and we're down here. And the gods don't really care about you as an individual unless you tick them off. And then you need to do something to get back in their good graces again. But that, that we're just, you know, the, the Greek mindset was, all right, we're just like these, these pawns down here that are just used at the whims of, of the gods. And, and John is stressing, Jesus is something altogether different. Like Jesus' coming made it possible for us to know him, to experience him. He's not afar off on Mount Olympus. No, we can experience him. We can know him. We can relate to him. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, 
talks about this same idea. That therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as you are. Yet he did not sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Like, like why, does, why does Jesus get us? Why, why does he understand us? Because he walked where we walked. He experienced the things that we experienced. That's why it's so amazing. That, that's why it's so crucial to understand that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he walked around as a man just like us. He experienced the same things that we did. And then in verse 3, John says, We proclaim to you what we've seen and what we've heard, so that you might have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John is saying, because Jesus came, because he came as God in the flesh, we now can have fellowship with one another. That word fellowship means communion, participation, being a partaker with. And so when we put our faith in, in Jesus Christ, we become part of a new family. In fact, that, it's part of the reason I use that verbiage all the time about our church family, that we, we are a new family when we put our faith in him. Because when we, when we put our, we, we, let me say it like this, we have a shared faith in Jesus. Like we, when, we, when we have a shared faith in Jesus, we have communion, we have participation, we have fellowship, we are partakers of God's grace and the story that God is writing together. And John shares this beautiful truth here, that Jesus coming in the, in the flesh, the, the incarnation, not only makes it possible for us to have relationship with him, but it also makes it possible for us to have relationship with others. That, we, that, that through Jesus, we have a, a horizontal relationship with God, but, or excuse me, a vertical relationship with God, but also a horizontal relationship with others. Because of our fellowship with him, we can fellowship with one another. I, I, was, I was thinking about this this week, and, and just like kind of this idea, like why in the world do we all gather here on a Sunday morning? Like what reason... Do, do we have, like, people from all different walks of life, all different experiences, like, we, we, every one of us in this room, we, we are very different than one another. We have, we have some in this room that have, have much, we have some that have hardly any. We have some in this room that have been believers for decades, we have some in this room that maybe have not even made that decision yet. We have some in this room that struggle with, with addiction. We have some whose lips have never even touched alcohol once. Like we, we, we're different races, different classes, backgrounds, experiences, political affiliations. Like we, we are a vastly diverse group. And so why would this disparate group of people come together every Sunday morning and enjoy being with one another, enjoy worshiping together? It's because in spite of our immense differences, we share a common draw. We share a common faith. That in spite of all of our differences, all those things we possess, that thing that draws us together 
is Jesus. Because of our vertical relationship with God, we have a horizontal relationship with others. That because we can fellowship, because Jesus came in the flesh, not only do we have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with one another. And then I want to close with verse 4 here. And he just makes a very simple statement. He says, we write this to make our joy complete. To make our joy complete. I've heard it said before that joy is the opposite of fear. And the people that John was writing to were people that in all likelihood were dealing with some fear. Like they were confused. When, When Paul had come and planted these churches, he preached and taught them that salvation came through faith alone. Period. End of story. Nothing more needed to be added to it. In fact, Paul, Paul went further to say, all right, if you try to add anything to that, it's actually a false gospel. It's no gospel at all. And then Paul dies, and these, the Gnostics come in, and they start telling these young churches that the true way to salvation is through some special mystical knowledge. Not just through faith, but you, you have to get this divine understanding and these people are, are confused. <laughs> you know, they're probably fearful. Like, all right, I thought we were good. I thought we were secure in our salvation. All right, but now I don't know. And John tells us that our faith alone will make our joy complete. Like, think, think of what Jesus said on the cross. Like, right before he, he gave up his spirit, he said, it is finished. Nothing more needs to be done. Nothing more needs to be added to it. And we can experience that joy that's complete, that joy that nothing more needs to be added to. Nothing more needs to be added to it. In fact, the psalmist writes in Psalm 1611, he says, you will show me the way of life, granting me joy, excuse me, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. There's so much that John is communicating in just these four short verses. He's telling us, hey, don't forget. Don't forget who Jesus is, that he's God, that he is God in the flesh, that that we can experience him, that we can know him, that through Jesus we can have fellowship with God and with one another and a joy that's complete, that nothing more needs to be added to it, that only Jesus can provide that. And, And I'll tell you, like, there's so much peripheral noise that goes on in, in our world and in our lives. Like, we, we might not have, like, Gnostics knocking on our door like these churches in, in Asia Minor did. But man, are we not bombarded with those same types of thoughts and ideas all the time? That our culture and our world and our media, like, even in our own heads, like, tell us, things that are counter to the very basic things. Like, the, like that, that's what I love about John in these first four verses. He, he's just kind of like distilling it down to the basics. Jesus is God in the flesh. You can know him. You can experience him. That we can have fellowship with God and with one another and that he brings a joy that's complete, that nothing more needs to be added to it. And maybe there's somebody in this room that needs that reminder today. Heck, I know this week I needed that reminder. 
that oftentimes I think we make our, our faith walk and our faith journey with God way more complicated than it needs to be. And sometimes we just need the Apostle John to come and just say, hey, it's not that, it's not that complicated. Don't overthink it. Jesus is God in the flesh. He came so that you can know, so you can experience him, so we can fellowship with God and with others. And he came to give us a joy, a complete joy. Nothing more needed to be at, needs to be added to it. And so I want to pray for us this morning that we would just embrace those simple things that John is talking about here as, as he just kind of like sets the table for where he's going to go in the rest of this letter. So Lord, we just love you and thank you, God, so much for who you are. God, you are amazing and you are so good. And, and Lord, there, there's so many times that, that we allow ourselves to get confused. We allow ourselves to, to maybe listen to the wrong voices, listen to the, the, the wrong things, that we've put our attention in, in a wrong direction, Lord. And God, we, we just need you to pull us back, to realign our, our vision and our thoughts and our minds with you once again. God, that we would embrace those simple truths. God, that you, Jesus, you are God in the flesh. God, that we can know you. We can experience you. And that we have unity. There, there's a fellowship that we can have with God and with one another because of you, because you stepped down, because you became fully man at the same time being fully God. And that you've given us a joy, a complete joy, that nothing more needs to be added. God, help us to experience that today. Help us this week, that as we go about our week, that we would embrace those simple truths to close out and shut out all those other noises, all those other voices, and just hold on to those simple truths of who you are and how amazing it is that, God, we don't have to come to you. God, you made a way and you came to us. So we thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.